LBZ original. You will notice the name of the show. Studio Basic. I know. <laughs> yeah. I said that to myself. Yeah. And I've got to get it right. <laughs> okay, I am going to do this correctly. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Studio BZ. We are here in our beautiful podcast studios high above Soldiers Field Road. I'm Paula Evan. And I'm John Keller. Hi, John. Hi, Paula. We have a jam-packed show, and we are going to begin with a Harvard study about the political attitudes of millennials. Yeah, they do this every year, and this year's findings are especially eyebrow-raising. We'll hear from the head of the polling uh, operation and one of the Harvard undergraduates who participated in it. It's a real, uh, let me put it this way, real warning shot across the bow of one of the major political parties. I'll let you guess which one that is. That's right. All right, so we'll be getting to that. We also have a phenomenal interview with two personal heroes of mine, Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky, both Boston Marathon bombing survivors who lost legs on that day. And they are out with a children's picture book about their service animal, Rescue the Dog. I've been hearing a lot about that. Oh, I love yeah. dogs and I love their stories. Yeah. So, And I'm about to have my first grandchild, so I maybe I can scoop your copy of the book and add it to the stack Exciting, for, for him or her. Exciting breaking news. Yeah. John Keller, a grandfather. I know, it's incredible. Youngest Youngest, best-looking grandfather ever, you were about to add, right? They're going to have to make up some other name. They right. can't call you Grandpa. R- right. We'll, well have to come up with Grandpa something. will be fine. Yeah. Maybe they could just call you Keller at large. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. And then uh, we know you have this great interview with a Wheel of Fortune winner from UMass Lowell. You know, you hear a lot about immigration and immigrants in the news, but this is the uh, up-close-and-personal story of a young guy, a student at UMass Lowell, uh, from an immigrant family, hard working people who run an auto body shop, uh, and he hit it big on Wheel of Fortune. We'll talk about the interesting backstory and uh, focus a little bit on the meaning of family and on being an American. It's really an inspirational story. Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe. Well, for the last 18 years, uh, the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School, under the direction for most of that time of John Della Volpe, have been doing the annual or in some cases uh, semi-annual surveys of how millennials feel, Uh, people aged 18 to 29. And it always makes news because that group can be the key to the outcome of any national election. If they show up to vote. vote. Well, guess what? As you're going to hear in our conversation, uh, millennials are fired up. They are ready to show up in November. And they are bringing to the polls a lot of the momentum that's been generated by activist, if you will, street movements. uh, And also uh, bringing in some very pointed opinions about the status quo down in Washington. We'll dig deep on that, both with Mr. Della Volpe and with a Harvard undergraduate who participated in the survey. He has some interesting input as well. So, John, I want to start with you now. I, I find it hard to believe this Harvard and the IOP has been doing this for 35 years. It's our 35th release, John. We've okay. been doing this for 18 years. 18 Since years. 2000. Since 2000. Okay, so when you started, the millennials were basically just a, a twinkle in someone's eye. Well, right? we, we were... The, I think the history of the poll is really fascinating because it was... We always think of this as one of the most IOP of all the IOP programs. And what I mean by that is it was never kind of my idea or any staff person's idea to start the survey back in 2000. It was the idea of uh, Teddy's predecessors, two 19-year-olds during the winter of 2000 who looked around our campus, their high schools, campuses around the country, and they noticed, it seemed like, well, everyone was deeply committed to volunteering and community service. Very few folks were interested in voting. Very few of their older brothers brothers and sisters voted in the 96 Clinton-Dolo campaign. There wasn't too much enthusiasm about 2000. So they came to the IOP and they said, we would like to conduct a survey to figure out why. Is there a disconnect between voting and volunteerism? That question is as relevant today 18 years later, John, as it's ever been. Well, judging from the findings of this poll, millennials are more interested in and motivated to vote 
in the fall elections than they've been in some time, if not ever. If not ever, regarding kind of the history of the last, you know, 18 or so years. And the millennials weren't, they were quote unquote millennials who we polled during that first poll back in 2000, but the generation didn't even have a name yet. So now what we're seeing is, you know, uh, 18 years later, we're at the end of that generation and we've we've welcomed in what we're calling at this point the post-millennials. So this poll of 18 to 29 year olds is a mix of the youngest millennials and the oldest of the post-millennial generation. Why, Teddy? What's motivating your peers to be so much more interested in getting out and voting now than they've been in the past? Well, so one thing we like to think about, and John likes to mention this, is um, there can be monumental shifts in what we in uh, like young people's participation. We saw that following 9-11, and we're seeing a similar sort of shift now following the election of Trump. Um, so young people are seeing things happen to their country that they're unhappy about, um, and while millennials have been unhappy with things in this country for a long time, for the first time, they're actually taking action. And we think that's because of, you know, uh, President Trump's election, but also because of recent movements um, inspired by young people to get out and vote and demand changes from our lawmakers, specifically uh, the gun movement um, with Parkland. So that's really resonating. Um, we believe so. I mean, it's hard to differentiate between uh, like correlation and causation. Right. Um, but we do see a significant change, particularly among 18 to 24 year olds who these uh, activists have been specifically targeting. If we look at folks who say they are likely to vote, um, specifically looking at Democrats from ages 18 to 24, uh, we see a 13 point increase from just the fall. Wow. Right. And, you know, while this poll polled both Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Let's be clear about this. This surge in activism and interest is being driven by young Democrats, clearly, right? Almost exclusively. As as Teddy said, we have 51% of young Democrats saying they will, quote, definitely vote in November. And again, to put this into perspective, that is is almost twice the number it was in the 2014 midterms, where about 28% of young Democrats said they would vote. Um, And uh, when you look at young Republicans, only 36% say they will vote, which is typically okay, typically expected in a traditional midterm year, but this will not be a traditional midterm year. So there's no sign that younger Republicans are being motivated to any great degree. Are they actually depressed? They're depressed and arguably disassociate themselves with the party in some ways. And I think it's it's difficult to, to read some of the exit poll data, for example, out of Alabama. But if you look at that in, ter- in terms of some perspective, overall turnout, especially with young people, wasn't significantly higher than it was in other elections. But And the reason is because Democrats surged, Republicans stayed home among the youth cohort. And we're seeing a similar sort of um, you know effect happening so far in this, in this year. Interesting, because that wasn't always the case. I mean, around here, we're saturated with college campuses. The student bodies skew democratic, skew liberal. But that's not necessarily always true around the country. And I remember that uh, Ronald Reagan's rise to power was largely fueled by the emergence of a young 18 to 29-year-old generation of Reagan voters. Generation X, I'm a part of that yeah. generation. And and when, the, when this poll started, John, in, in 2000, if you take a review of the exit polls, I believe the youth vote was an exact tie, 50-50, for Al Gore and George Bush back in 2000. So it is it is not fair or not true to say that young people grow up automatically being Democrats. They're not. They're influenced by the kind of the current events kind of that surround them. Like you said, Reagan in the 80s and, um, you know, Bush slash Obama in the 2000s. Well, Teddy, your poll finds the partisan gap among uh, likely voting younger people is it's increasing exponentially. I believe you've got it increasing to a 41-point spread uh, over the 32-point gap just last fall. Yes. Uh, what specifically is driving that? Um, you mentioned guns before. What else? Uh, guns is definitely one of the biggest issues. Um, I'm not really sure what other specific things it could be. There definitely are other uh, factors at play. I, I think one of the most significant factors is is essentially kind of a rejection of of most things coming out of the White House. You know, when we look at the approval rating um, of um, 
Donald Trump, it's at 25%. Um, it's down six points from where it, where it was a year ago. On uh, his best accomplishments, things associated with the economy and tax reform, he pulls into the low 30s in terms of overall, overall approval. But young people give him um, very, very low marks for the way in which he's handled gun violence, um, as well as the way in which he's handled race relations. Take that in addition to the uh, things not moving quickly or collaboratively out of a Republican-led Congress, I think is, are two of the reasons that, um, that young Democrats are far more excited and that we see this partisan gap opening. It looked to me from reading through your poll as if the, also the, the, uh, the Russia investigations uh, that have been going on have had an impact. When I look at the trust numbers— where for uh, younger people, the most trusted institutions, well, first of all, college and university administrations, which uh, I guess was a referendum on you, John, over there at the, the IOP. They, they <laughs> our like new director, our they, new director is a former college president, so more about okay. Mark than me, but yes. All right. Well, that was a nice vote of confidence in you guys. But then the U.S. military, more than half trusting them all or most of the time. Uh, the depart- Then you got the Department of Justice, the Supreme Court, the FBI. Uh, so I wonder if th- that points to younger people saying, boy, there, there's some sleazy business going on here and we're supporting the institutions that are going after it. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, there's been a narrative out there that um, the DOJ and FBI are these non-trusted institutions. We do still see significant trust among both Democrats and Republicans, um, according to our poll. Um, I'd also like to point out that um, a lot of the institutions we see as more trusted tend to be more local. So your um, college administration, is it something that feels tangible, like you can see it? Um, state governments also tended to be far more trusted than federal governments, far more trusted than Congress. So when young people can see and feel a political entity, they are far more likely to associate it with trust. I must say I was a little disappointed to see the media down there at 16 percent. That's not very good. What can we do to regain the trust of you, you and your peers? So I think that's a good question. Um, and I can mo- mostly speak for myself. But I, looking at the data, we see a lack of trust among both Republicans and Democrats. Um, so clearly there is a disconnect there. It's not just about having too conservative, conservative of a media. It's not just about having too liberal of a media. But it's about having a media that really represents all of uh, all the voices of young people. Um, personally, um, I think that I like to see a media that holds uh, politicians and the powerful's feet to the fire, and we are seeing that to a large extent. Um, but at the same time, uh, it'd be nice if uh, that could uh, spread across all sort of uh, political divisions among our generation. As I was telling you before, I mean, obviously, these numbers bode ill for the future of the Republican Party. I mean, if this trend continues, uh, they want to have a single person under 30 voting for them. Uh, I was talking with the head of the Mass Republican Party about this trend line and what the Republicans can do about it. Let's listen to a little bit of what she said. Obviously, if those numbers are right, that's a problem for you. How does your party address that and deal with that over time? Or in the short term? Well, I, I think, look, I think that the case can be made here in Massachusetts, certainly, um, at, at every level, that competition on the field uh, is a good thing, right? We are an overwhelmingly uh, Democratic legislature uh, in the House and Senate. And in our congressional delegation, we have only Democrats. And I think that, that the case can be made, particularly here in Massachusetts, that when there's another team on the field, competition is good. And also that members of the uh, controlling party in Massachusetts uh, members of the controlling party uh, down in Washington electing some Republicans to our federal delegation can help Massachusetts because it gives us an opportunity to put people uh, in, you know, the um, in the discussion, bring somebody to the table because uh, the Democrats in our delegation right now are completely unable to work across the aisle and get some some real things done for Massachusetts. Teddy, do you see those arguments as having a chance of getting traction with these younger voters? I mean, if we look at the issues that uh, young people most distrust uh, or most disapprove of coming from the Republican Party or specifically from the president, it is issues uh, like race, race relations. It is issues, uh, it is issues like uh, gun control. And those are issues where it's very hard to, the way it's happening right now, have those productive conversations. 
Um, right. If we have one side who's saying, you know, we want common sense gun control and another side who's saying absolutely not, don't take our guns. That's not necessarily a super productive conversation to be having. Um, a lot of young people uh, in the fall were very influenced by President Trump's remarks on um, the uh, Charlottesville incident. And although maybe he is not representative of the entire Republican Party, um, young people do associate those sort of racially insensitive remarks with that broader party. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there should be productive discussions between these two parties, but I think that young people are disappointed with the way the Republican Party has been um, so united behind the president. John, what's your analysis of how much of this is specific to Trump? In other words, we're talking about how voters feel about Republicans, but there are a lot of Republicans who don't think Donald Trump is a real Republican. He's got such a vivid, if you'll pardon the expression, personality. If he were to leave or be impeached and say someone arguably more conservative, but with a more politic demeanor like Mike Pence were to come in, or if down the road a younger, more socially moderate Republican were to come in, can these young voters be won back? Here's the, here's the difficulty, I think, um, for all elected officials today. And I um, think young people can be and will be as critical of Democrats who don't align on issues that Teddy identified as Republicans. So it's not one party versus another party only, despite the fact that, as you indicated, there's a 41-point partisan gap in terms of which party they prefer to have control of Congress, despite the fact that overall, as we've been tracking this generation for 18 years, they tend to be more progressive today than the year before, than the year before that, et cetera, despite those factors. Only one-third of young people, according to the poll we released in December, believe the Democratic Party cares about them. Only one third. So right now, Democrats are the best of what's being offered, but doesn't mean that they'll continue to support Democrats. It doesn't mean they'll continue to support Democrats in 2020. It means right now, where we are, you know, as, as Teddy identified, you know, Donald Trump, for better or worse, is symbolic of the greater Republican Party. Massachusetts, you know, um, for most, if not all of my lifetime, we've had more Republican governors and Democratic governors. That might have, you know, changed a little bit. But we've always been a state where we've had identify, you know, identified the best person, whether he or she was a Democrat, Republican. And, um, and I think the reason is because the races have been somewhat kind of competitive on the state level, but there's been tangible differences that one campaign and one candidate has made about compared to the other one. There was a tangible difference in the way in which Charlie Baker ran his campaign against Martha Coakley in terms of how the state would be governed. And the degree to which Republicans can be successful, they need to talk about the tangible difference between this candidate versus you know, Elizabeth Warren in the Senate. Is there anything in this poll that would help flesh out the profile of a likely Democratic nominee in 2020, if the Democrats are smart and they want to pull the youth vote two and a half years from now, what will that candidate look like? Well, the, the first thing I would suggest is they study the success. There, there are two great case studies, right? There's a success of Barack Obama in his primary in 08. And similar, um, Bernie Sanders did better among young people than Obama did in that primary. Um, for the first time in 2020, there'll be more millennials voting than any other age cohort. So really comparing what did Obama and Sanders do so well compared to, for, for example, Hillary Clinton. If Hillary Clinton, the Democrat, Democratic nominee, it's just it starts with about a 60-point uh, number because of the generic candidate for president starts with about 60. Um, that's where she started. She's somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. And uh, you just need to maintain that to win. And she actually lost several of those points, and she got 55, 57% of the vote. So the difference between Clinton and Obama, I think, can be summarized in the fact that Obama and Sanders empowered young people. They made young people a priority. They had a shared worldview of the way in which they see the world in terms of a collaborative nature in which they ran campaigns. It was far more about them than it was kind of some of the other kind of special interests. So I would start with identifying ways to empower young people, make them integral to the campaign from day one, and 
own it. That is the reason there's a Democratic senator in Alabama. That is the reason that Obama um, was uh, was president. And it would be wise, I think, for future nominee, future the next nominee, to think about those kinds of uh, practical steps. We asked a series of questions, essentially asking young people, "What do you blame for this country's problems?" Yeah. Um, and we saw consistently among Democrats, uh, young people like to blame politicians. Um, they like to blame uh, money in politics. Um, and I can't remember if it was the third or fourth, but structural racism. Yeah. Was that the third or the fourth? Structural racism, lack of access to higher ed. You were talking about that before. Exactly. So if the Democratic nominee can stick to those talking points, I think that we'll be looking at a movement that young people can really get behind. One last thing. Uh, you just pointed out that both Democrat, young Democrats and young Republicans agree they hold politicians largely responsible for mm-hmm. uh, their their doubts about the future of democracy. Well, uh, it's becoming increasingly likely that we might be right back in divided government uh, come next January. Democrats holding one or both branches of Congress, Republicans holding the White House. Uh, We've been through that before, and it's resulted in apathy and widespread pox on both their houses. Is it possible that come 2020, Younger, the younger voters we're talking about will be more disillusioned and cynical than ever. I don't think so. I, 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 I when we, we, we very well could disagree on this, Teddy. I don't, I don't think so because there are fundamental changes, not just in the top lines, but in the underlying data um, that are similar to what we saw after 9-11 in terms of um, the main reason that young people don't participate is because their efforts and their own views don't have um, tangible consequences or tangible results. And what we're seeing, the combination of that attitudinal shift that happened pre and post essentially the 2016 election, add that, the the movements that we saw from the fall to the winter between, you know, Me Too and, and now the um, uh, Time's Auckland. Up and Never Again, I think is going to be kind of an accelerant to um, a fire that's being created for young people to really take back their country. I really feel that um, this, it could I could be wrong, but I feel like this will continue to gain momentum until... Um, young people are able to change government, not just from the outside. They've been trying to change it from the outside, but now change it, tra- uh, changing it from the inside. But by the way, we could have a nominee. We could have candidates, several candidates, members of this generation in 2020. In fact, one of the early earliest kind of drafters of this poll, one of uh, someone who who sat in this chair where Teddy is right now, is considering running for president of the United States. You know, Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana. South Bend, Indiana. He um, ran for the chairmanship of the DNC. I think he came in third. But, you know, reports are that he's actively considering running for the presidency. So he, he's certainly kind of one of the older millennials. There could be some other ones. It doesn't matter what age you are, but as long as you begin to kind of understand the, the, the structural challenges that young people see in this country and are empowering people to solve it together in a collaborative way, that combination of things, um, if empowered, I think, will, will result in stronger democracy moving forward. Yeah, I think what we find that's new in this poll is young people have always been angry. We've always found that young people are angry. But for the first time, um, we're seeing that this anger is also translating into action. Um, And so for me, that makes me very optimistic about the future. So November 2018 might not be the culmination of a wave, but the beginning of one. Well said. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. We'd like to give you an idea of what evening's all about. You can look forward to relaxing every evening from now on. That's the thing to me for where I am in life right now. I've got a whole patch of a whole bunch of millennials at home and was their age during the Reagan revolution. And, you know, the morning in America message. I mean, I have to say coming out of the 70s as a young person because of uh, in the wake of Vietnam, Watergate, the energy crisis, uh, Jimmy Carter talking about uh, just uh, what was his fam- his famous phrase? Malaise. The malaise. It, it was just, it was a depressing era. If you were a young person, everything that you heard talking about. So Reagan, in his ability to get people to embrace his kind of sunny, optimistic view of America, uh, he was successful in saying uh, this is a new era, but this is a whole movement. Of course, you know, there was an entire generation that had been working on this from William F. Buckley forward. But in the Trump era, 
these kids seem savvy enough to know that if they don't agree with him politically on those issues, he seems to be uh, sui generis. He he does not represent a movement per se as they think of it. After the eight years of the Obama administration and everything that they were talked to about in terms of social issues, economic opportunity, things that happen on social media. I remember when that Will I Am video hit. You just you knew Obama was going to win. Yeah. I mean, it just it it hit young people and with this wave of optimism and this is the new America. This Trump thing, whatever we're going to end up calling it, appears to be in a way just about him. That w- once he is no longer the president, are these philosophy is going to hang on. It doesn't seem to have anything to move the Republican Party or the GOP forward. And Trump and the Republicans are, to a great extent, failing to speak to the concerns that millennials had even before Donald Trump emerged. You know, you're right about there was a lot of optimism and energy surrounding Obama. And yet by the end of eight years, you you have a lot of millennials struggling to gain the traction in this gig economy. You've seen, we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, the only demographic in our country right now that's flocking to organized labor are millennials. Are millennials. You're yeah. seeing a lot of organizing going on in uh, in the uh, online news industry, for You're instance. hearing about socialism being a very popular idea on college campuses again, you know, which so was verboten for to decades. Put it, but bluntly, in an economy like this, kids are getting screwed. Their outlook is not uh, necessarily optimistic about the economy. Globally, it's hardly a time for optimism. So no wonder uh, they're angry and they're on the march. They saw no one go to prison after the banking scandal and the bailout. You know that they, as children, probably heard and saw some scary scenes at home of anxiety-ridden, crying parents whose 401k was suddenly cut in half or gone, uh, and then no one punished for that. So there, I do think there is a certain sense of cynicism that has really set in with this age group. Guantanamo was not closed. Everything was not fixed in Iraq. Syria uh, is really a disaster. And then you get to the economic issues. And yeah, they do not have a rosy picture of this century so far. And while the Harvard study shows they do have a fair amount of admiration for some of these iconic institutions, Google, for instance, and uh, Amazon, uh, they don't trust Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg as far as they can oh, throw Facebook them. is like snail mail to them. They and, don't even and, use it. And so, you know, the, we're on the verge of something big. I mean, the midterm elections, November of this year, that is going to be one of the most fascinating nights in 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 all the years I've been covering politics, uh, in, in, in large part because of I want to see what this group is saying, what they... Do what, you think it's going to be a blue wave or a blue tsunami? Well, I, I, you know, I mean, right, do you think... Right now, it, it's looking like a big it does blue look that. wave, to say the least. On the other hand, uh, if that wave doesn't materialize or the results are disappointing, boy, would you... Uh, that might be curtains for the current generation of Democratic leadership in Washington, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer et al. I think they agree with you, John, that they want the baby boomers to be done. Who wouldn't agree with Grandpa? Come on. <laughs> this is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So, John, we know Boston Marathon bombing survivors Patrick Downs and Jessica Kensky were the young newlywed couple who each lost legs during the marathon bombing five years ago. And together they have written this beautiful children's book about the bond between human and service dog. It's called Rescue and Jessica, uh, illustrated by Scott Magoon, who is an artist from Reading, Massachusetts. And they are on a book tour right now of schools and organizations around the country. The book's already shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. That's incredible. So I wanted to talk to them about what they're hearing, what they're experiencing now that it's out and they are uh, talking with people, particularly children. But I did start out asking Patrick, who uh, uh, crossed the finish line yesterday for the third time, this time on a hand cycle, what it's like for him to, and what emotions go through his head when he crosses the finish line at the Boston Marathon. Patrick, I have to ask you right away, how are you feeling this morning? 
I feel great. You feel I mean, good? You, you never feel any of the soreness once you cross the finish line. Wow. It's all it's all pride and uh, excitement. So, no, I feel great. That's awesome. Just really briefly, just you crossed the finish line yesterday. Uh, give me your time and, and just describe the team that you rode with during the marathon. Yeah, our time was not good. Uh, I don't think not. anyone's time was particularly good yesterday. But the goal was just to finish. It wasn't to do anything too yeah. fast. But I rode with the Achilles Freedom Team of uh, wounded service members, a lot of men and women who we've become dear friends with. Um, they participate either on prosthetic legs and run the race, or they use hand cycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been such an important thing for us because they welcomed us to Walter Reed in a really special way. Sure. And for us to be able to welcome them to Boston on Patriots Day is really special for us. Yeah. I have to ask Patrick, what, what's the feeling when you come across the finish line? And Jessica, when you see him come across the finish line, for each of you, what are the emotions that go through your heart and your head? Um, I think it's just so nice to continue to have new memories mm. at a place that, um, you know, has a lot of bad memories for us. So I just feel like every year, um, the more that, our, that Patrick goes back and... Um, you know, I also had a team of oncology nurses that this is the third year that they've run. Um, they're oncology nurses from Mass General. Um, they've run it for their cause, Caring for a Cure, to help take care of cancer patients. So it's really neat to see my colleagues complete the race and be yes. tracking them and cheering for them. And our illustrator ran for um, needs this year, mm-hmm. and his name is Scott Magoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, how so did Scott do? He somehow, he said as personal record yesterday good for him <laughs> apparently these are his prime conditions <laughs> I know that I can I have n- never been in quite that much torrential rain uh, and cold and every marathoner I spoke with every spectator said it was the worst conditions they had ever been in <laughs> for a without race. a doubt oh it's brutal uh, Patrick for you when you when you come across that finish line I saw you with David Wade you know it's just such an emotional moment what were you thinking yeah, I mean, the, the whole race, there are moments uh, where I find myself choking up um, when you hear the energy from the crowd. And uh, when we leave early in the morning on the bus, we leave from the Sheridan Hotel. And the first turn we take is away from Boylston. But you can look to your right down to the finish line. Mm-hmm. And so you're dreaming about that for hours as you're prepping for the race and then when you're on the course. So when... When you take the left on the Boylston, it's just this wave of emotion comes over me and you just soak it up and start the crowds yelling at you and I love yelling back at the crowd and <laughs> it's just it's very very overwhelming. Yeah, I've often thought that last tunnel, that last section, it, the sound when you are are a participant yes. must be incredible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Rescue and Jessica, because congratulations, guys. You're number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Did you ever think that was going to happen in your life? No. It was a wild ride last week, for sure, but really exciting. Um, It's really amazing, I think, that there's a book on the New York Times bestseller list that stars a little girl with no feet in a wheelchair. You know, I think Mm. that's really remarkable. Yeah. And, and, and of course, Rescue was MSPCA Dog of the Year. So he's already had, you know, some fantastic moments this, this year, <laughs> we know, feeling pretty full of himself. But let's just talk about the book before, because obviously Liam and I had interviewed you about this on our 8 o'clock news. But for people listening to this podcast and hearing about it for the first time, uh, the book published by the Candlewick Press is Rescue and Jessica, A Life-Changing Friendship. And why did you think it was important for this to be uh, such a beautifully illustrated children's book? Scott Magoon, who you mentioned, your illustrator, is from Reading. And he included really beautiful, touching portraits as you go through the story. Why a children's book? We have found when we go out in public that kids will see our prosthetics, they'll see rescue, and you can tell that they're bursting with questions, that it's probably a unique experience for them to see metal legs on a human being, to see a dog with a red cape in places that you don't usually see dogs. 
And so we've had this privilege of having conversations with kids about what all this means, mm. how, how our legs work, all the things rescue can do for us. And so the book is a formal way to engage kids in that conversation. And we've seen that perhaps when they first see us, there's some concern on their face. Maybe they're worried that we're in pain. But the moment that we start to talk to them about it or they pet rescue or they check out our legs, they become fascinated by it. Mm. And that's such an important transformation and changes the way we see people with disabilities. Instead mm. of seeing them for how they're wounded or victimized, instead we see them for all the strengths that they still possess, all the opportunity that still lies in front of them. And that's a really powerful shift that right. we delight in seeing in kids. Yeah, having a book f about inclusion of people with disabilities, uh, inclusion of people who might have an assistance animal with them, that which children see in public. And just uh, for you, you know, I have four kids, so I really have a passion for children's literature and books, and we've got a million of them. And one of the things that I always think is so magical is how animals can uh, be the personification of emotion for children and really explain their emotions to them or other people's situations to them. One of my favorite aspects of what you've done with this book is that Rescue uh, didn't quite make it as a seeing eye dog at first. Right. No, I think um, it kind of plays back into the fact that Rescue and I, it's a partnership. And so he, he takes care of me and I take care of him. And in the book, he has an equal um, kind of responsibility and weight and personality in the book, just as my character Jessica does. So it is a true story that um, Guiding Eyes for the Blind, the dogs that they determine as very young puppies, eight to nine weeks old, they determine that if they're not going to be a good seeing eye dog, they don't have the right personality. Needs kind of gets next dibs on them. And Needs does a whole bunch of different um, animals, but they do dogs for people with permanent disabilities, which rescue is, but they also do hearing dogs and social dogs and right. facility dogs. But um, so rescue was then shipped from Guiding Eyes from the Blind as this tiny little puppy over to um, needs and that must have been kind of a scary experience you know leaving yeah. what everything he knew and going to somewhere he didn't know anyone or what was expected and what he was going to do and it's not what he was bred for so in a way his life wasn't turning out how he planned yeah and just how jessica's isn't either so it was a very kind of natural um, parallel stories to tell. He's such a beautiful black lab, kind of that wide-eyed, innocent look on his face. And Patrick, yeah. I heard you saying that he's such a good character for children because children are constantly up against enormous challenges, right? Learning how to read, learning how to ride a bike, you know, whatever their first things are that they mm -hmm. are trying to accomplish and they always seem impossible to a child at first. Yeah, they're constantly practicing failing, practicing again as they learn to master the little, the smallest things like brushing their teeth to uh, multiplication tables. Mm -hmm. And that that's a part of life that even as adults we do. We, we're always trying to improve and sometimes we hit roadblocks along the way, but that those can be actually really powerful moments, the moments mm -hmm. that can uh, help define who we are because we then have to dig a little deeper and use more of our character to overcome them and and shape our personality. So um, I, we hope that as children read it, they understand that, that they can relate to that trial and error process. Um, but that what is really the secret ingredient to overcoming obstacles is having loyal companions in your life. Yeah. Just as rescue serves for Jessica, that hopefully they have people in their lives who will love them unconditionally and will be there with them to help mm -hmm. pick them up and help them figure out how to move on. Yeah, that happiness is really about relationships, right? Yes, it's all it's all about our belonging to each other. That 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 is the crux of it all. As you've been on your book tour, and I know you did the hugely popular reading at the Fairmont Copley last weekend and at other locations, kids must be saying some funny things to you. And, you know, they're just, they're just funny. Uh, have yeah. you been there any great, really comical moments as you've been reading this book to groups of kids? Um, I loved at the Fairmont Copley, a little kid asked how old Rescue was. 
Mm. And I said, he's five, he's almost six. And then the next three hands that we called on were all just announcing that they were also six. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the egocentrism of the yeah, child. Ex- right? exactly. <laughs> it's all about um, me. You know, at another school reading a, a little, this was really young, kindergarten, um, when Patrick was reading in his rescue voice that has, has now become kind of famous around town, <laughs> a little boy plugged his ears in the front row and told Patrick he was too loud. <laughs> God, one, we've had one little girl ask me with a very empathetic look on her face, how hard was it to lose my second leg? And it just like, took my breath away. What did you say to her? Yeah, I, well, I really had to take a second to compose myself. And I told, and I said, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, harder than I ever dreamed it would have been. And then I kind of shifted the conversation to all the things that helped me get through it. And Um, and for that child, you know, there she is looking up at you. Smiling yes. and laughing and mm-hmm. moving on with your life. I mean, that's an enormous message for a child to understand that someone can face the most difficult moment of their life and be okay. And I was so impressed by her empathy in that moment that she could imagine that this was really hard for Jess and that she could connect with that, but while not being overwhelmed by it. I think a lot of times we think that kids are going to be overwhelmed by that, but she was so composed yet so thoughtful when she asks her question that we're just, we're continuing to be amazed by our kids and how just sophisticated they are despite their few years on earth. Well, and don't you think, I've heard, I heard an educator say once that the most important thing for children is that you take them seriously. They can yeah. tell that yep. you're telling them something really important and you're taking yes. their questions seriously. Uh, the, the flip side of that is rescue brings so much levity and laughter, right, to yeah. whatever you're doing. Isn't that the great thing about a dog? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why this story is such a nice balance. I think that's why we, we were able to put such heavy stuff in a children's picture book because I think rescue's character really balances it out. And I think how we interact with kids is the same way. You know, right after a really hard question like that, I was able to bring it back to all the ways rescue helped me through that really tough time and the things he did and how having a loving spouse there and family and friends, you know. Right. Um, And that those people still love you no matter what. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you hear parents talk about, you know, if they're going through a divorce or if someone's sick, their message to their kids is always, no matter what, we're going to love you. And for them, because we all know that if they can hold on to that, then they can weather a lot of other storms. How does rescue sound? Can you read even just the first page? Oh, I don't even have, <laughs> anything? Don't even have the book. Pay, or anything from memory? Oh. Uh, this is just rescue thoughts from this morning. Such a great day. I woke up. My mama took me outside. It was so nice to see the sun shining on her face. <laughs> and I love it. He calls you Papa, right? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, he switches up, Big Papa pops. <laughs> I love his Instagram account and his Twitter. I follow both. He's yes, a very he, enthusiastic he, dog. Oh, uh, he, he's a <laughs> social. He's prolific on social media. He's always facing his phone, and that like kids don't even care if we sign it. They just want rescue to sign it. <laughs> oh, that is so great, Patrick and Jess. Thanks so much. Thank you, Paula. Really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. It's an event. You have 10 seconds to tell us what it is. Good luck. Movie night. That's it. You got it. Got the right letter. He's got that is the sound of Mansoor Chaya, a UMass Lowell political science major, who now has money to go to law school in his pocket and a trip to Hawaii. Good for him. Thanks to his spectacular showing on a recent episode of Wheel of Fortune, as you just heard, and when I saw an article, I believe it was in the Lowell Sun, about Mansoor, and more to the point about his family background, I realized we had to talk to him here on Studio BZ because when you hear references to the American dream yeah. or the story of immigrants coming to America to work hard and set up a better life for their children and their children's children, they're talking about Mansoor and his family. Listen to this. So 
Wheel of Fortune runs in the family, Mansoor. Yep, I guess so, from my dad to me. So my dad auditioned, like, I want to say nine years ago when they came into Boston. So he w- we went to the taping, and he had only gotten the first toss-up. And then he didn't, wasn't able to solve any puzzles. I mean, most of it, he was just getting a lot of bankrupts, honestly. Okay. Like, so, like, that might have played a factor in it. Sure. It was a bad, it was, a, you know, the wheel of fortune, after all. Right. <laughs> so, tell us about the experience of being on the show. I mean, we carry the show here at WBZ, and we watch it, but to be on it, particularly, your dad was in the stands watching, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it was, um, the experience was crazy. It was just, it was so different than anything I've ever experienced. I mean, my dad being in the stands, knowing that I have to just try to best them at this point. And just being on the show, I mean, everybody there treats us so well. The, the producers, the whole entire staff, they're all amazing. Uh, Pat Sajak's still as funny as he is on TV, as he is off the camera. And Vanna White's just great, too. They're all great people. It was just an, it was a great, it was an unreal experience. That's how I'd say it. So, according to some of the clips I saw, you uh, you won the second round, but then you kind of had a moment of truth of playing the game having to do with Hawaii. Tell me about that. So, what had happened was, um, I'm down like 12000 and then eventually it came down to me buying either an O or a U at the end. And normally, I'd buy an O any day of the week. O is what is my go-to usually uh, between O and U. But I don't know. I feel like God came down and told me pick a U. So that's, I ended up choosing the U, uh, luckily. And in the end, how much did you win? So in the end, I won 44000 cash. And about the, the trip was about 7900 Now, Mansoor, in addition, you're a student at UMass Lowell, right? Yep, uh, political science. I'm a rising senior. Uh, and you also work for the family business. Tell me about that. So actually, I yeah, I work for my dad's car dealership. He sells salvage vehicles. I've been doing that my whole life since back when I was a younging. And now I'm just actually just got promoted to legal assistant at the law firm I'm working at. Now, uh, Mansoor, uh, was your dad born here or did he bring the family here? So my dad was born in Lebanon, and when he was five years old, his whole family came over. And it was my dad, his uh, brother, two sisters, and then my grandparents who came here. And then my mom actually was in Lebanon, was born and raised in Lebanon. And when she was 18, her and my dad, my dad went to Lebanon, and then they just decided to get married. And then she came here. Well, you know, Mansour, for many, many generations, the... The whole saga of the American dream has been that, you know, you come to America to find your fortune. I guess in your case, it turned out to literally work out that way. Yeah. And like the American dream, John, it's you have to work for your fortune. You you come, you don't just, not everything is just handed to you. You don't come and just expect all of a sudden you're going to be doing well off. Like my, my dad, he struggled a lot when he came here. And thank God he, him and his brother, they worked their butts off uh, up until the point where they opened up the, uh, they opened up a card uh, shop up in Lawrence and thankfully it went well. And then my grandfather hustled. I mean, my grandfather came here. He couldn't even speak English when he came here and he had to learn. And he was like about 30 or 40 years old. He had to, he had to learn a brand new language. I mean, I'm struggling to learn languages now, even in school, and I'm eight, uh, even when I was 18. And my grandfather was like 35, 40, and he was learning a new language and working two, three different jobs. So was my grandmother. Yeah, they definitely, my family, I believe, epitomized the idea of what the American dream is and how if you come, you work hard, you put in effort, you will eventually make it. It's just a matter of putting your mind to it. Well, now you've got a down payment on your future dreams, Mansoor. What are they? So my future goal is to attend Suffolk Law. I believe that's going to be end up being my first choice of law school. And then eventually becoming an attorney. So the money you won will go a long way toward paying the freight, right? Yep. 
it's going to hopefully, hopefully get some scholarships too, if I can. But yeah, the money's definitely going to be helping me towards law school. Wow. Well, your family must be very proud of you. Absolutely. I, my family's great. I love, um, when we were watching the show, we had like 40 of us all in our list, crunched in our living room. Now my grip, my family's great. I, I credit it so much to my grandfather. I mean, to keep, because you know how it's tough to see families together, to see a lot of families stay together so close, like a majority of the family. There's always someone getting issues, but my family stayed close for almost 40 years now. Wow. 40, 50 years. They've been together. They've been close. Like the whole family has been staying together. And it's just amazing. I'm, I'm so blessed and I just, I love it. Well, uh, you got a great thing going. Congratulations to you and your family. Yep, thank you again, John. I appreciate it. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people, uh, knowledge is a great weapon. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night and good luck. And that's the way it is. And so it goes. Dan Rather reporting from New York. Courage. Take care of yourself and each other. Here it is, your moment is in. Secret out. You stay classy, San Diego. I'll be back next time. Bye-bye. Gotta wish you love, peace, and soul. Let's talk about the sign-off, John. Yeah. What, what, what should our sign-off be for Studio BC? Well, you know, first of all, great job by, by Jonathan Case putting that together, but you missed on, uh, out on my all-time favorite sign-off. You, you might be too young for this. Casey Kasem. Yes. Does that ring a bell? American, American Top 40. Top 40. I, keep, I, I forgot about that. I apologize. That is a classic sign-off. You want to do it all together? Keep your feet on the ground, ground and keep, keep reaching, reaching for, for the, the stars. stars. The other one that I thought of that makes me think of Donald Trump, because it was the very first show on which I ever saw a person named Donald Trump, was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember? Robin Leach. Yeah. Uh, what, what was, was it? Something in Caviar Dreams? Oh, Champagne um, Wishes and Caviar Dreams. Champagne Wishes and Caviar Dreams. Oh, that is so nauseating. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I guess the issue is we need it. We need to come up with our own iconic sign-off. We do. And, you know, this, I don't know, I guess we could recycle this. I think it was Jerry Williams, the late, great radio talk show host who was on WBZ Radio for many years. I believe... He would say at the end of his show, I'll be zing you. I'll be zing you. We what do you think? Do that. That's pretty good. Especially is that since... too hokey? <laughs> is that square? We love hokey. Hokey is actually kind of a, you know, in fashion again. Isn't it is? It? Don't you think? It's in like retro. In this world of mason jars and... <laughs> Making everything yourself. <laughs> Why, not? Why not? We'll be seeing right. you. I'll be, we'll be seeing you. It brings you. you back to that. Uh, hey, we want people to subscribe and tell your friends. John, we have 70 subscribers so far. Excellent. I think that's a great start. More to the point, those 70 and others who are, are tuning in maybe haven't yes. subscribed yet. Let us know. This is a new venture. Yes. Let us know what you like, what you hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, if what you hate involves me, keep it to yourself. <laughs> Don't But otherwise, John. feel free to share. Yeah. And Send us uh, articles you want us to talk about. You've got a suggestion. You. We'll jump on it. And uh, we'll be seeing you, right? <laughs> we can find John at, at... Keller at large. At Keller at large. At Keller at large. I am at Paula Eben... At Paula Eben WBZ. But for Studio BZ, all together now... We'll be seeing you. Lovely. There was a um, <laughs> there was a show in the late sixties called The Prisoner. The Pri- Did you ever hear you see Yeah, that? sure. That was yeah. what they said on that show. Be seeing you. That was their thing. They really? Be seeing you. We'll have to dig it up. Just remember that stupid bubble was (laughs) What the hell was that? (laughs)